0: This is Rob Tebbett for Boxing Social in association with Betfred. Delighted to be joined for the first time, might I add, by Dr. Rod Balelos. Hopefully, I've said your name right, the matchroom boxing
1: Perfect. doctor. How are you, Dr. Rod? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Good to hear from you and uh, nice to meet you and having this interview. It's, uh... It'll be interesting
0: <laughs> it certainly is going to be interesting um for people who who don't know you are you are the new matrim boxing doctor um as you mentioned an interesting interview when it popped up on my um in my emails from anthony lever shout out anthony lever matrim boxing usa i thought that's interesting i think that's a very positive step let's find out some more so here we are so why don't you tell me a little bit about you joining matrim and your position there
1: uh, well, uh, of course, I'm a practicing emergency medicine physician in Las Vegas, um, of course, one of the fighting capitals of the world. And uh, um, actually, my boss that I work for is actually Dr. Flip Kumanski, who's you know a boxing legend here in Las Vegas. And um, I guess they, um, Eric and Sean um, from Matchroom, approached Flip to see, hey, is there anybody else uh, there that might be interested in doing something with the boxing community, um, medical-wise, and... You know, they thought of me. So um, I got connected with them and um, and here we are.
0: You mentioned that Abhi, about being approach to to sort of get involved in, and to work alongside Matchroom. What's the remit of your job? What type of things are you going to be basing your time doing and spending your time doing?
1: Um, well, I guess this has been in the works just for a little bit, uh, just trying to get ideas. Of course, pre-COVID, uh, Matchroom wanted uh, a physician to help Overlook and oversee some of their 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 fighters. Um, of course, there's the ringside doctors, you know the boxing commission doctors and things like that, but they just wanted somebody else to kind of oversee it and make sure that, you know, pre-fight, post-fight, any concerns that the boxers may have regarding health or injury or whatnot, or any symptoms that may pop up after a fight, you know, where all, everybody's either trying to go home, the commission's not there anymore, you know, nobody else to look out, out for them. You know, a lot of these guys, they don't even have, guys or gals, uh, they don't have, you know, primary care physicians or someone to contact after a fight or you know, pre or post and if they need any advice, that's what I'm there for.
0: Sounds very interesting. And um, one thing I would like to discuss is I mean there are being a contact sport, being a combat sport as boxing is, there are of course numerous health issues to, to navigate through and that pop up here and there throughout the sport. Um, one of them one of the first ones to discuss would be making weight in the process of making weight. Dehydration is obviously a big topic in boxing. What's your view on that and how will your role be catered around looking after fighters who are obviously dehydrating themselves to make weight?
1: Um, I guess, you know, living in a town of Las Vegas, we're in a big desert area. You know, I guess we here in Vegas, we got a little versed with it. I mean, you know, even these last few months, I mean, it's been hitting hundreds. We get a lot of people here coming in with dehydration. Um, But of course, you know, it's part of the sport of boxing, you know, to cut and make weight, you know. But of course, the biggest thing is to do it the most healthy way um in order to be able to rehydrate and be at your best um, and so uh of course like i said it's, it's part of the sport and um I'm, I'm here to help oversee it and make sure that they're after the rehydration or even to do during the dehydration process they're not going into danger modes where they could injure themselves either pre-fight during the fight or after the fight um, because of course yes it is their career that they're looking out for um, not just one fight, so I, I hopefully the fighters and themselves do it safe way. The safest way they have their trainers. I'm pretty sure that they're experts at it. But you know, just to get overview, just to make sure some of the signs and physical symptoms that potentially could happen with dehydration and rehydration do not show up.
0: It's interesting that you would say that. And obviously, when it comes to dehydration, there are certain things that people will look out for. I mean, when you say things about danger zone with regards to dehydration, what are the types of things that you're looking out for and that you're looking to monitor?
1: Um, well, I guess, you know, going, you know, I'm going to go always go back to my ER roots um, just because, I'm, you know, of course, I'm an ER doctor. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of dehydration and um, also to the electrolyte things that could happen with it. Um, sometimes, of course, if you're dehydrated, and you're not getting enough nutrients, especially sodium and things like that. Um, Of course, that could create muscle cramps. You know, sodium and potassium go hand in hand. And so sometimes certain things, if your sodium is bad, um, you could affect your potassium, your lactic acid could build up. And of course, things you look out for are muscle cramps. Um, Sometimes too, when we get people in the ER that are really dehydrated, sometimes their sodiums are very low. Um, What we call hyponatremia, of course, there's certain technical things about hyponatremia, whether you're dehydrated or not dehydrated, but sometimes over-hydrating or hydrating too fast can cause a few things such as brain swelling. Um, it's called uh, CPM or cerebral pontymyelinosis, I believe. And you gotta monitor for those type of things so they don't get dizzy, they don't get brain swelling, which of course, doing it right after, you know, pr- you know, d- making weight, rehydrating yourself too quickly, and then going into a fight where you're not tip top um, neurologically, that could, of course, um, spell danger.
0: What do you make of, I mean, I'm not, this is more an opinion piece, Rob, I'm I'm certainly not going to try and hang you out to dry on on this, the answer that you give here, but what's your your overall opinion and your overall thought process on the weight-making process and the fact that fighters are willing to kind of dehydrate themselves, in some instances, very dangerously, then refuel and go into a combat sports event? Um,
1: Of course, from a medical standpoint um, and being very conservative, um, the way I practice and how I uh, view patients and see and disposition them. Of course, there, there's a lot of things that can make, that make me go, whoa, you know, like, wow, I mean, you're really pushing your body to the limit and things like that. Um, of course, me not being a boxer trainer uh, specifically, where they do this on a, you know, fight-by-fight basis on a, a long career. Um of course, I'm not the most versed to say how they do it, but of course, it's gonna be a learning experience on both sides to, to get more of the nuances and make sure that some of these nuances that they're doing and try to perform to get their fighter ready um, learning. It's gonna be a big learning curve, um, but also you know make sure that there are certain things that to look out for that. So like, yeah, maybe you want might wanna rethink that.
0: one of the things the final question on um the weight making process and dehydration one of the things that we're often hearing from um from fighters is that they've outgrown the weight or they've done too many weight cuts and their body physically cannot make the weight anymore what sort of thing causes that in a fighter and and what are the potential long-term effects of a fighter boiling themselves down and expanding and boiling themselves down and expanding again
1: yeah um of course that's a very difficult question um but i kind of Uh, it's almost kind of uh, to explain it a little bit maybe it's almost kind of like your body tolerance Uh, your body is your body is always under training and things like that and your body does grow Um, I don't know if it's a good analogy to use like Olympic gymnasts and things like that cutting weight and things like that by cutting it down weight and you, you kind of grow a tolerance to being able to do that and instead of being here and then you're here and then you go down and then you go up sometimes it's that base that you go back down to it just the base goes higher and higher and your body just tends to adapt a little bit and so I guess the be- the only way to really describe it is uh, maybe a little bit of body tolerance and your body's just it's growing you know body's always constantly changing and it'll it'll adapt.
0: Okay, well, I found that very interesting. Um, Hopefully people who are watching did as well. Um, Moving on, before we talk about coronavirus and COVID, and I'm sure the many issues and obstacles that's thrown up, not just for yourself, but obviously the boxing industry as well, Um, one of the biggest problems and certainly one of the biggest talking points in boxing is the use of performance-enhancing drugs in boxing. Now, one of the reasons that I'm excited to speak to you is to have have somebody who is now working in boxing in in a medical capacity who can kind yes. of discuss these things and discuss performance-enhancing drugs. What's your experience? What's your, what's your knowledge of performance-enhancing drugs as it relates to combat sports?
1: Um, of course, uh, just, of course, recently getting into this and looking up some of the banned substances and things like that, um, one of the big things I'm like, wow, I mean, there are a lot of things, like even some little things. That you wouldn't even think of that could potentially be banned. Um, like, of course, uh, one of the medications that we use all the time in the emergency department is Tordal, and it's a great non non narcotic pain medication which really works great for kidney stones and bone pain and things like that. But uh, um, certain of those things, just, it's it's a huge list, and um, of course, I see it could be problems in a lot of sports, especially the combat sports, and it with the unfair advantage and of course, combat sports risk of hurting somebody else. It's not fair fighting and uh, you just got to make sure that follow the rules and uh, make sure none of the, even the things you would think of that could uh, be okay to use. You know, a lot of these things go into metabolites and you don't want to create false positives and things like that because it does affect a fighter's career and the reputation as well.
0: With regards to um, performance enhancing drugs moving forward, I mean contamination is, is one of the big issues and, and certainly it's, it's not uncommon for us to, to see a fighter failure test and then claim contamination. Is part mm-hmm. of your remit and part of the job that you're going to be doing with Matchroom to be essentially a soundboard or, or be approached by fighters or potentially somebody in their team with questions regarding performance enhancing drugs or what they're putting in their body?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure um, that's gonna be part of Matchroom, but we haven't really uh, worked out the logistics of certain things of that. Um, Of course, with helping in their health, uh, just general health and maintenance, um, you know, people get colds um, every once in a while. Sometimes they, you know, if they have asthma, certain medications like uh, steroids really help with the lungs. And my part there would be, especially if they're not in the fight time and they're just on the off time where sometimes they could still get a surprise test. Um, I would be able to help with reasoning and things like that. Uh, you know, steroids, glucocorticoids really help with the lungs. If they're asthmatic, there's a medical reason for using it and, you know, help clarify certain things.
0: Final question on performance-enhancing drugs. Um, again, another gray area and another, um, another big talking point throughout not just boxing or combat sports, but sports in general is the use of therapeutic usage exemptions, TUEs in boxing. Yes. Um, how common are TUEs in your experience for elite-level athletes?
1: Um, uh, to tell you the truth, I'm not very versed of that as far as doing research on, uh, the TE, uh, TUEs, <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be able to give you a good answer on that, um, yeah.
0: No problem, that's fine. Um, <laughs> moving on, um, oh. the, e- the elephant in the room, or should I say f- the elephant around the world, uh, mm-hmm. coronavirus, COVID-19, um, seems like an awful long time ago that we were quote-unquote normal, um, obviously this has been a move that you've been discussing with Matchroom before coronavirus, but just yes. how big of an impact has this been on, oh, I, I want to talk about boxing and sport, but obviously the world in general, being a physician as you are.
1: Yes. Um, well, of course it's a, it's a big impact. Um, I'm a big sports fan, not just boxing, football, basketball, soccer. Um, I feel like the world needs sports. Sometimes the world just needs a distraction from all the craziness. Um, but of course, being on the emergency department side, where I'm actually seeing the cases that come in from old to to young, um, it, it is a problem. And um, unfortunately, there's still not a, an answer um, to how to control this and stop this. The best we could do is practice all the safety guidelines that are put forward to us. And um, but you know, like I said, long live sports, and we need some sort of distraction instead of hearing all the negativity and seeing everything. Of course, it's a tough world, um, but sometimes people need a distraction.
0: Being um, an emergency physician or working in the emergency room, um, and feel free to answer this as detailed or, or as not as you're comfortable with. It's not a problem. And um, what was your first experience of encountering coronavirus or encountering somebody with COVID nineteen?
1: Um, I guess my first experience was uh, actually during the time where it was. Starting to take off, and we're starting to get all the news um, from it. I was actually on on a two-week vacation, of course, at home, but I'm starting to hear this all this stuff on the news, and I was probably just like everybody else, like, oh, you know, sounds like a bad flu, you know, especially with all the information that we're getting. To and then my first shift back, I was like, okay, I had I made sure I had my mask. First shift back, a couple of my doctors that were on already, they had full what we call pappers. I mean, the helmet, the um, air blower with the the purifiers. I'm like wow, I mean, this thing is, it's that serious. Um, and then, of course, one of my first patients that I had, um, of course, it's an elderly person, of course, looking at the records, history of asthma or COPD, um, but they were just in so extremis that, you know, I was like, wow, I mean, we see this person all the time. We're able to be able to turn them around. And then, of course, right off the bat, have to put a breathing tube or intubation. And that was kind of a reality check of how seeing these cases, how bad they could get. Um, even more recently, I um, have a lot of friends around uh, Las Vegas who are nurses and things like that, nurses, staff, respiratory therapists. I'm seeing them come into our ER, I mean, just sitting there, but just just huffing and puffing. And so we, it's it's crazy how we're seeing peaks and valleys. Uh, initially, we thought we had it under control. Not that many cases were coming in. Um, but of course, now we're seeing another resurgence and uh, some a lot of our ERs are getting impacted uh, with uh, people that we have no room for in the ICU anymore. So we're actually holding them in the ER. So um, it's just crazy dealing with all the peaks and valleys.
0: What was Las Vegas like? I, I traveled to Las Vegas often with work. Um, obviously you being a resident of there, I think the strip was closed for 78 days or something like that. I, I can yeah. imagine that being a very surreal period of time.
1: Yes, very, very, very much so. Driving down the strip, like when they said they'd close it down I, a couple nights later, I went and drove down it, and it's just eerie seeing how, I mean, even on a random January winter zero-degree day, there's still people running around the streets, even on 110 degrees weather during the summer. There's people everywhere. It's just surreal seeing the strip that empty and with most of the lights dim. Um, here in Las Vegas. Of course, like I said, it's peaks and valleys. The um, They are starting to open up some casinos. Um, my fiance and I, we love, we barely go to the strip, but we love eating at some of the restaurants. And um, um, a couple weeks ago, it's like, okay, let's eat at one of our favorite restaurants inside the Bellagio. But of course, seeing how many people were there, granted, yes, they're handing out masks. There's actually hand-washing stations, um, a lot of um, hand sanitizers and things like that, we actually just made a U-turn because seeing that many people in a closing space, it, 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 just, it just give me chills. You just don't want to take that chance.
0: Yeah, I saw, I mean, we're going off topic a little bit here, but I mean, I, as I said, I do travel to Las Vegas often and go to the casinos for, for work um, and pleasure a little bit, not gonna lie.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um, when I saw that the strip had opened up after a couple of days and I was stunned at the amount of people there. I mean, there were some with masks, some without, but everybody, there was no social distance. It was, it was actually quite scary.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, some some hotels um, are probably better than others as far as, you know, partitions between uh, some of the gambling areas like the craps tables roulette and some of them i've seen they're just nothing just like nothing ever happened that's impressive. so scary
0: scary so matchroom boxing returned to america in tulsa um 15th of august now when the fight was announced i um i had a look at the covid rates for for oklahoma and tulsa and saw that they were well, pretty high i think the day after the fight was announced in in tulsa officially announced they'd had their record number of cases maybe it was around a thousand cases just talk to us about the process of getting the fight done what you've had to do from a medical background to ensure that obviously safety being paramount on any boxing show but this one obviously a step higher
1: yes um so of course when we heard of the news the immediate thing was how are we going to make sure Everyone travels safe, keep the the camps and the fighters safe, all the staff at the zone and match room. Um, So a lot of planning went in behind it as far as strategies. And we figured out the best strategies were that once the fight was announced, everybody, of course, try to be strict quarantine as best as possible, safety, um, social distancing, mask, uh, good hand sanitation. And um, of course, we figured that we, of course, don't want to infect each other, but we don't want to even Worsen the pandemic than it is by of course going into an endemic area. We're traveling from all over the place So of course we figured that we would be doing pre-flight Pre-fight and flight um, testing in order to ensure that people are safe to go and travel and then of course once we're there Um, quarantine and um, before any of the real events um, such as press conferences, um, weigh-ins, and of course the fight, we have another test um, to be performed in order to ensure that nobody contracted anything via flight or, God forbid, if one of the tests was a false negative prior to fighting, uh, we could catch some of those ones too. Um, Also too, during fight week, um, I'll be helping. We have a few helpers there as well too, medically wise, that would (laughs) <laughs> a few uh, helpers otherwise there medical wise that even if after testing we'll be checking on them taking temperatures making sure that they don't develop symptoms um in order to just like i said keep everyone safe uh make sure we don't infect anybody else god forbid if we're an a carrier and of course do not contribute anything at all to the worsening of the pandemic
0: that's very, very in-depth and very detailed, which is obviously what we're what we're looking for in these kind of very, very uncertain times. Um, yes. you, you touched upon something there which has caused a lot of consternation among some of the top-ranked shows that returned in Las Vegas, and that is of, of false negatives, false positives. We've seen fighters test negative in one moment and then positive the next, but then as soon as they come out of the bubble, they're negative again. What yes. causes that?
1: Um, of course... I always like to say that in medicine, there's no 100% or 0%. There's no real test um, that will be 100%. Um, certain CAT scans, heart catheterizations, and there's always still a margin of error. With regards to the testing, um, of course, each test has an endemic, um, I, I wanna say fault, but um, every, every test, yeah, I guess everything, every test would have some sort of fault. Um, Like I said, everything's 100%. During say oral, um, there's oral swabs that are there, but if you ate or drank or smoked a cigarette right before, of course it could alter some of the DNA and um, have a false negative. Um, Sometimes false positives can happen because who knows, you might have a different respiratory virus um, because this is SARS-CoV-2. There could be other ones that it could potentially cross-react with the reagent and unfortunately give you a false positive for COVID. Um, unfortunately, our nasal passages, they are breeding grounds um, for a lot of bacteria and viruses. I don't know if you heard of staph infection. Sometimes we, we swab noses and just happen to have, be colonized with staph in the nose. And so other things in cross-reactivity, um, of course, there's always user error. Um, the person doing the test may not go back into the area that you, you need to get. Um, sometimes, I guess an example, the strep throat, you know for sure they have strep throat, but if you just didn't swab the right area, you can still have any result. Um, so there's a lot of different nuances that could create either a false positive or false negative. And, um, of course, that's why we, we're just going to keep constantly checking up on everybody making sure they don't develop any symptoms. And of course, um, doing a double test just to try to catch as much as possible. Like I said, nothing is a hundred percent, unfortunately, but we're going to do our best to make sure the safety of everybody involved.
0: I think that's fair to say, I mean, a lot of people over here have been kind of even for all the best will in the world, predicting anything with regards to the COVID or, or coronavirus is, is impossible at the best of times, but obviously nothing, as you say, is 100% in medicine.
1: Yes, exactly. And uh, all we could do is do our best and you know, test and social distance. I mean, even even with a mask, it's not 100%. Social distancing, it's not 100%. But if you do all these things, masks and social distancing and safe practices, by adding all those little percents, hopefully that say the 97% chance you won't get it will be 98, 99, and close, as close to 100 as possible.
0: Okay, well, Dr. Rod, I found this extremely informative and very, very interesting. I'm now going to ask you a question that I'm pretty sure the answer is gonna, I'm pretty sure the answer is gonna be here, and feel under no obligation to try and make it anything other than the obvious answer. Okay. How long do you feel that we're going to be needing to operate under these, these guidelines?
1: Ah, uh... Uh, that's, that's a, that's a pretty tough, uh, tough question. Um, unfortunately by hearing everything and the way testing is, the way the vaccinations are going and even just learning about viruses itself, unfortunately I think COVID will be with us for a a long time. Um, knowing that we had our first peak, um, pre-spring and then we're having another peak during the summer, unfortunately flu season is coming up. Um, and we gotta be able to be able to test everybody and test constantly, ramp up the tests. Um, and unfortunately, it's just going to be here for a while. The vaccination does show promise. Um, hopefully, the, the, the more widespread availability of the test, as well as the quickness you could get a result. Um, I'm seeing some, some companies are trying to do a paper antigen test where you could do it at home and, you know, like a nasal swab or some of the HIV tests where you, you could get over the counter, get an answer in 30 minutes, and have these tests readily available. All these things hopefully will lessen lessen the amount and the spread and of course the degree of the pandemic but unfortunately i it still seems like a long a long way ahead
0: okay well that was that was the answer that i thought you would give you just you it much better than i ever would have been able to (laughs) (laughs) Um, dr rod thank you so much this has been excellent i'd really love to make this a regular feature of what we do i think boxing in general has been calling out for let's say more more recognized physicians, more, you know, people who I can actually go to with a medical issue in boxing as a journalist, as a reporter. I think this is a great step for Matchroom, so credit to them and to you. Um, Look forward to catching up with you sometime soon. Thanks very much for speaking to Boxing Social.
1: I know. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Rod. You're welcome.